0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Philippians chapter 4, final verses of this letter, verses 21 through 23. Paul says this. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this is the word of God for the people of God today. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, our Lord, we thank you for your word. I oh, thank you for um, your provision to us in your word. Thank you, Father, for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the Philippian church. And uh, Father, I ask today as we, as we hear from your word, as we look at your word, as we study your word, Lord, that you would come and encourage and strengthen, um, rebuke even, um, form us through the preaching of your word, through the study of your word. Um, Lord, we, we need to hear from you uh, this morning, each and every one of us. God I pray that you would help me do the impossible this morning is to preach your word um, through a video camera to people probably in their living rooms um, and I pray God that you would speak a life-giving word uh, to those in need of hearing from you so father I trust that you will do that and more Lord, we love you in Jesus name amen so this is the uh, last few verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians and um I, uh, as I read this passage this week, you know, to be honest with you, you read those three verses, it's kind of a, it's an easy three verses to just skip right on by, you know, it's just the, hey, sayonara, see you later, out of here. Um, it doesn't seem like there's an awful lot there, I mean, there's so much meaty stuff throughout this letter that when you read his kind of final greeting, his goodbye, if you will, it, it's kind of like, okay, oh, goodbye, see you. And as I prayed through these verses, and as I studied uh, some of the commentaries, some of the scholars, and as I thought about even just the fact that what Paul is doing here is he's saying goodbye to uh, a family, right? Saying goodbye is never an easy thing to do. Um. You know, whether you're saying goodbye to someone after spending a few days together over the holidays like we just had we're saying goodbye to someone who maybe is being called to a different mission field after years of laboring in the gospel together maybe you're saying goodbye to your, your college age kids as they head off to college uh, you're saying goodbye to a dying relative or maybe you're sitting on your couch you're saying goodbye to a spouse who's leaving saying goodbye is never easy Even when you can see the goodbye kind of coming on the horizon, right? Like, you kind of feel, you sense, like, and that's coming. And that was the case for me when my mom died, uh, you know, years ago. Um, you know, when some of our kiddos graduated, grew up and graduated, took off. And you can kind of see those things coming. Uh, countless times for me in uh, pastoral ministry have witnessed the Lord moving somebody onward to a different place and different space, even in those times when you can kind of like you feel, you sense, like, okay, I kind of saw that coming. I knew it was uh, happening. Those goodbyes are still never easy. How do you cope? How do you cope with the pain of saying goodbye? Because goodbyes aren't easy. Really, I was thinking that, that regardless of the circumstances that surround any kind of a, a goodbye in our lives, um, every goodbye can be a somewhat uh, painful. Um, and the reality is that we, as human beings, we're complex, right? We have uh, just a variety of like pain reactors deep down inside of us, they're embedded. In us and those those pain reactors, they kind of launch into overdrive the moment that you feel that pain of a goodbye. Sometimes those pain reactors uh, produce something healthy, and, and sometimes they don't. Depending on the circumstances, depending on um, you know the, the the wiring that you had, depending on the experiences that you've had in your life, depending on the ways that uh, your personality is put together. Um, There may be ways that that we look to either numb the pain or dismiss the pain or live in that pain or live through the pain. So I want you to think about those four categories just for a moment, okay? Whether you numb the pain or you just kind of like dismiss the pain or you just constantly live in it and you can never get out of it or somehow you try to live through the pain, that there are still just a myriad of ways that each of us has a tendency to cope with the pain of a goodbye. I don't know what that's like for you, whether you're the kind of person who likes to numb things or you just dismiss things and pretend like it's not there or you just live in it and can't get out of it or whether you're the kind that's like, I'm going to conquer this, live through it, get over it, get past it, right? I don't know which one it is for you, but um, I trust that the Holy Spirit will maybe um, reveal that to you in these moments. You know, some of us try to numb things. We try to numb the pain a little bit as we maybe look to an addiction of some kind or, or look to some kind of uh, isolation, which kind of isolate, insulate ourselves from that pain. Other, others of us, we try to just kind of dismiss the pain. We try to overwork ourselves to cover it up. We try to downplay our feelings. We kind of guilt or, or shame ourselves deep inside with our self-talk. It's a way of dismissing, as though those feelings that you feel aren't valid. And Some of us just constantly live in it. We, we're stuck in this pain of the goodbyes that we've faced in our lives, and we wind up listening to these inner voices of regret. Man, I wish we would have said that. wish we would have done that. Lost. Man, I, I don't have that friend anymore, so on and so forth. My, my mom died. Or maybe it's despair, just all-out despair, just I'm done, I I can't do anymore, right? It's despair. Others of us, we try to live through that pain. We we try to overcome it. We try to fight against it. Uh, I probably fit this category um, a bit. We try to fight through that and overcome it. And we fight those feelings. Sometimes we wind up beating ourselves up inside until the the feelings of loss, or the feelings of rejection, those feelings of betrayal. When those begin to hurt less than maybe the feelings of guilt or shame inside, we just kind of beat ourselves, and it becomes this really ugly cycle. That. That can be kind of the most negative side of people who try to fight through. There's positive sides as well, but I'm just going to kind of point out some of the negatives so that we can be thinking about that. The reality here is that every one of us does have different coping mechanisms that are woven into the fabric of our very complex uh, human natures. and and, Those things get woven into us through years of hard experience, uh, kind of in light of our our own intrinsic individual wiring, right? Our temperament, our, our personality, our gifting, and not to mention we all have a individual, a peculiar you know weaknesses, <coughs> shortcomings, sin natures um, that, that, that get amplified by our brokenness in the midst of saying goodbye so saying goodbye is really never an easy thing to do it's a complex thing to do we weren't really built to say goodbye we were built to be in relationship and yet we live in a broken world we were meant to be an image of a triune godhead who has never once for even a split second been separated We were meant to image that kind of unity, that kind of depth of love. And yet, we live in a broken world where saying goodbye is uh, something that happens every day in the world that we live in. And honestly, as you look at these last three verses of what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Philippians, he's basically saying goodbye to the Philippian church. Now, don't hear me wrong, it's a very healthy thing he's saying goodbye. And the question is, uh, in our own broken experience of dealing with the goodbyes in our life, uh, what can we learn from how Paul says goodbye to the Philippians? What can we learn from that? If you just take a look back over the letter that Paul has written to the Philippians, what you're going to see is you're going to see what has been called Paul's most... Uh, intimate letter to any church family it is it is the one that is definitely the most intimate the most close he uses the most uh, emotionally deep relational language throughout this letter um, than any other letter in the new testament out of out of all the other um, epistles as well Throughout this letter the Apostle Paul, he has continuously appointed the Philippians back to their fellowship, their, their partnership, uh, their relationship, their shared friendship in the work of evangelism. Um, he, he's continuously pointed them back to their shared experiences of not only evangelism, but, but grace-filled uh, salvation and, and suffering. Pointed them back to their shared friendship in the unifying work of the Holy Spirit. Pointed them back to their fellowship, their friendship with this powerful identification in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He's pointed them back to uh, the joy filled labor of facing troubling times together while remaining faithful and generous. And it seems like if you were to take a look at the phrase, um, "I hold you in my heart," That's the phrase of chapter one verse seven. If you were to look at that phrase that when Paul says, "I hold you in my heart," this is like that phrase permeates absolutely everything that Paul has said throughout this letter. He remembers his intimate relationships, his close, loving relationships with you know, Lydia. The wealthy Asian woman, though he doesn't mention her in this letter, if you were to go back to Acts 16, you, you have to assume this lady is in that congregation still. She's the first believer in Philippi. Maybe the ex-slave, um, demon-possessed girl that uh, was the second believer in Philippi. Um, maybe the, the Philippian jailer. Um, You think of Epaphroditus and Timothy, those are names that he mentions in the book. When you get that sense that when he says, man, i hold you in my heart, he's thinking of real people with real faces that he's done some time with. Paul is saying goodbye to people that he absolutely loves dearly, and the reality is he's in prison on death row, basically, for preaching the gospel, most likely that he won't see them again. Apostle Paul loves the Philippians, man. He loves them so much that he has not shrunk back from articulating the, the central theme of the letter, the, the, the major issues and the main remedies that he's addressed in the letter. He, he has had the courage to address things, hasn't shrunk back from those. He wants what's best for his. Beloved Philippian friends, he, he wants to see them living their lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he wants them to fight against and, and overcome any shreds of self-centeredness or pride or complaining or arguing or disagreements or, or division among them. He wants to see them fight against, wants to see them overcome those sinful issues as they put on the mind of christ as they work out their own salvation in christ as they stand firm in the joy of christ you see the apostle paul loves the philippian people so much he loves them enough to speak the truth and yet he's saying goodbye to them today that's that's just a look back over what's happened in this letter and Paul knows and Paul knows that when a when a church family wholeheartedly embraces and commits to obeying and living out the themes of this letter. When it's not like, oh, thank God Paul said that Pfft, whatever, I'm going to go do this thing. When 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 this church family in Philippi actually commits to obeying And listening to the Apostle Paul, he knows that brothers will be gained. He knows that enemies will become family. And he knows that grace will become a way of life. Those are the three points from his closing. Paul knows that when a church family embraces everything he said in this letter, That brothers will be gained, enemies will become family, and grace will become a way of life. This is the power of the Apostle Paul's goodbye to the Philippians. I summarize it by saying this, that when grace is your way of life, enemies become brothers forever. When grace is your way of life, enemies become brothers forever. Well, you look back at the text... You look at these four words in the text. The word saint in verse 21. The word brothers, brothers in verse 21. The word saints in verse 22. And the word grace in verse 23. When you look at those words, you see these are very powerful words. They're powerful words to insert into the goodbye of a letter. They're not earthly kingdom focused words. Their kingdom of heaven-focused words. The Apostle Paul is not living for the reconstruction or even the tearing down of any kind of an earthly kingdom. The Apostle Paul is living his life, giving his life for the building up of an invisible kingdom. That invisible kingdom of heaven made visible in the church alone and in no other institution. He's doing this as he lives his own life as a citizen of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, of the only king that is worthy of our attention. Jesus Christ, who was crucified, risen, and is returning in glory to crush absolutely every other earthly kingdom under his feet. The words, saint. Saint. Brothers, saints, and grace. And those four words, man, they bring all of what I just said to bear on his goodbye. It's quite simply, in my mind, one of the most amazing goodbyes that I have ever read even though at first it would have been easy to have just bypassed it. I can't tell you how many times I've read Philippians and read that closing, just been like, all right, Sinora, onto on to the next book. Colossians is next. Here we go. I'm so thankful for God's provision in his word. Because in these four words, saints, brothers, saint, grace, we are reminded, as I said earlier, that when grace is your way of life, enemies become brothers forever. Let's just parse this out a little bit, right? Dig, dig in a little bit more. Look at the word saint in verse 21. Follow along with me. When the Apostle Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, what he's doing here is he's referring to the Philippians themselves, with an individual term, saint, that actually means holy, set apart, perfect. He's not saying, hey, uh, greet all those dirty, rotten scoundrels there in the Philippian church. He's saying, greet those saints. Greet every saint, every holy person, every set apart person, every perfect person in the Philippian church. Uh, Greet Every saint in Christ Jesus. You see, even though the Apostle Paul knows and has even addressed some really deeply disturbing and deeply horrific sins of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreeing and division, he's addressed that in their midst. He still refers to them. He still relates to them under their heavenly position as saints in Christ Jesus. Holy in Christ Jesus. Set apart in Christ Jesus. Perfect in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? This means, this means that Paul is looking beyond the momentary struggle of sin in this life among the Philippians. Among all of us, if we're honest, he's looking beyond that momentary struggle with sin. And what he's doing is he's choosing to relate to them under their spiritual identity in Christ. Why? Because here's the thing. In Christ, though we struggle with sin right here, right now, our identity, who we actually are, it's dictated. Not by what we do or do not do. Not by our checkmark lists of rights done and wrongs done. Our identity is dictated by the Father's declaration of righteousness over us. In the work of Christ at the cross, the empty tomb, and His imminent return in glory. Listen, uh, the, the struggle that you and I walk in with sin, that does not identify you. What identifies you is God's declaration, the Father's declaration. When he walks into the room and you're sitting there on the floor and you're all crumpled up because of your sin and because of the brokenness of this world and the pain that you walk through, when you're in that heap of a mess, the Father walks in the room and he's gentle and he's patient and he's kind and he's good and he's loving. And when he walks into the room, here's what he says over you. He says, you're good you're perfect, you're holy. You belong to me, and I set you apart for relationship with me. That's what the word saints means. In Christ, every one of us in this very moment, we are simultaneously sinners and saints, okay? We're we're still sinful people. It's not our identification, but we still sin. We're still sinners and we're saints and we're awaiting the perfection of finalized sainthood in heaven. Like like you just think about this question. How do you think your relationships on this earth could be transformed if we all just began to relate to one another under that heavenly identity as saints? If you relate to your kids, you relate to your spouse, you relate to your friends, if you related to your enemies especially, if you related to them under a heavenly identity such as saint, holy, perfect, set-apart in Christ Jesus, even if your enemies are not yet there, what if you you related to them in that way, thereby they could experience the gracious presence of the Father through you, rather than the condemning, self-centered, pride-filled, arguing, divisive presence that we often bring, that our culture wants us to bring into every relationship we have? What would it look like for us to live under that banner of sainthood? This This is why I say, when grace is your way of life, enemies become brothers forever. Look at this word brothers. In verse 21, track with me still. And the Apostle Paul says, The brothers who are with me greet you. He's simply saying that that the the Philippians need to be reminded that uh, that they're not alone. When he uses that word brothers, he's reminding the Philippians that they are not alone, Uh, they're not the only believers on the face of the planet. It's such a good reminder because I mean, we're all like little kids sometimes. It's so easy to start thinking, look, I'm the only person on the face of the plan who has to face this. I'm the only one going through this. I mean, it's just it's so easy to like, get stuck in that self-pity bubble, that self-centered bubble. It's good here that he's reminded that they're not the only believers on the face of the plan. Despite Paul's circumstances, right, being in chains for the gospel, He's saying, hey, that there are brothers in every corner of the earth who have become family members by the grace of God. And the consensus here, as you do the study, and you look at what the scholars say and commentary, so on and so forth, is that this term brothers, it's meant to remind the Philippians that they have family members in Christ all around the known globe at the time. Now, sometimes I think it's easy for us Christians to get so entrenched in what's happening in our own little corner of the world with our own little four walls. We begin to worry about our problems, we begin to complain about our issues, we begin to argue about silly things like politics. We get divided over little things like pieces of cloth. As if Jesus died on a cross for that. We do this when we forget that this. His kingdom is not our home. That's when we do those things. (coughs) Don't we forget that this kingdom is not our home? We forget that the church, like a family, has been united by the shed blood and the broken body and the promised return of a Savior who laid down His rights. He gave His life as a ransom for His enemies so that the family of God could be established here on this earth as a visible and verbal witness of the gospel do you think about this picture of brotherhood how refreshing would it be in the church today in America especially because we don't live in Africa or Asia we live in America Refreshing way to be at the church in America would begin to behave like spiritual brothers and sisters despite our diverse opinions on matters of secondary importance. Refreshing, redeeming. <coughs> Once again, this is why I say when grace is your way of life, enemies become brothers forever. Take a look at the word saints, verse 22. The Apostle Paul says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That's a bigger statement than you might think. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What's he doing here? What's he doing? You're telling me there's Christians in Caesar's household? I mean, Caesar is a bad man, okay? A bad man. There's believers there? How? <laughs> How could, how could there be believers in Caesar's household? What he's doing here, when Paul says this, is he's, he's taking the concepts of sainthood and, and brotherhood in Christ Jesus, he's really taking this to the next level um, when he says this. Again, easy phrase to miss when you're just like, that's eh, the end of the book, I'm out. But Man, when you sit and you actually think about this, Taking things to the next level, man. He's boldly reminding the Philippians that even though he is in chains for preaching the gospel, he has absolutely zero influence in the culture. He has zero political power. He's reminding them that even though all that is true, the power of the gospel alone is enough to transform the lives of even some of the Roman guards whom he's been chained to, his enemies. Like, I think that if ever there was someone who could have incited a major revolt, and let's not forget, in Israel's history at this time, the revolt of the Maccabees was not very long ago. And if I've mentioned it a few times in my sermons, but if you've never done an in-depth study on the revolt of the Maccabees and what happened, man, that's a crazy thing. You ought to go study it, check it out. It wasn't that far in the past for these guys, so um, it would be weighing on Christians' minds. If ever there was someone who could have incited a major revolt against the powers that be, it would have been the Apostle Paul, in my mind, powerful leader. Ah, I, I, what I might have done if I was in the Apostle Paul's shoes, I might have spent my days trying to strategize ways to get that Philippian jailer. Um, through the right political hoops, um, get him in a position of power so he'd get me released from my chain so I'd go out and be free to preach the gospel. I might be tempted to do that. The Apostle Paul could have uh, incited an, you know an, an all-out civil disobedience riot, break him out of jail. I mean, he was there unjustly anyways. Could have. The reality, the reality for the Apostle Paul, and I want you to hear this. This is all over the Scriptures. When you, when you think about these things, when you think about the world we live in, you think about the context of the Scriptures and what you read. Paul saw his chains as an opportunity to share the Gospel with men who were chained to him day and night. And what was the result of that? The result of that is that there were Christian brothers and sisters, saints, working their daily jobs in the sinful, evil household of a Roman emperor. Paul's goal, Paul's goal was not government takeover. His goal was the establishment of a spiritual kingdom that was rooted in the soil of hearts that had been transformed and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel alone. How crazy would it be, again, keep asking, how crazy would it be if we, we, in America, if we could look across the aisle at our quote-unquote political enemies, and we could see that some of them are actually saints? Some of them are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. They're doing the best they can to live out the gospel in a hostile environment. What would it look like for us to unite that way? Wouldn't it be more God-honoring? Wouldn't it be more refreshing? Wouldn't it be more redeeming in, in our polarized, politicized world to see that when grace becomes your way of life, enemies actually become your brothers forever? He's transforming. That's what grace does. It transforms. Take a look at the final word, grace. Take a look at that word. Verse 23, what does the Apostle Paul say? His final words. Is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When he says this, he's hanging the final note of his letter. The final note on his guitar, so to speak. Final note on his piano. The final note of this letter hanging it on the gospel of grace. He's doing this because he knows that the the spirits of the Philippian believers are only going to be transformed. They're only going to be sustained by God's grace alone through the gift of faith alone in Christ alone. According to the scriptures alone for the glory of God alone. There's a lot of things that the apostle Paul could have chosen as his final word. Right, A lot of things he could have chosen. That's his final word to the Philippians. But but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? By the provision of a very good Father in heaven. He chose to leave all of the spiritual vitality and, and all of the future hope of the souls of the Philippian believers hanging on one word, the sure and steadfast coat hook of God's overwhelming grace in The person and the work of Christ Jesus at the cross of Calvary. This is what the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has done. Listen to me. A graceless Christian. A graceless Christian is really an oxymoron at best. A graceless Christian is really, to be more exact, an antichrist. A graceless Christian is a quote-unquote believer who can't see past the tip of his or her own nose. A graceless Christian is puffed up with insecure or arrogant pride. A graceless Christian has a heart that complains every kind of difficulty that comes his or her way. A graceless Christian revels in really petty arguments. A graceless Christian agrees with nobody except the latest conspiracy theory. Greatest graceless Christian sows division into relationships with every other word. This, this person, the person that lives this way, is living in a graceless existence and, and is lacking a true and transforming encounter with grace made visible in the face of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Can you imagine? you imagine what, what kind of shockwaves would, would be sent around the world by, by a church family who encounters the grace of God in the person and the work, the promises of Christ Jesus in the cross and the empty tomb and the promise of return? It's again, when, when grace is your way of life, enemies become brothers forever. So as we've worked our way through all these verses, how do you wrap up? You know, I, all I know by way of conclusion is that saying goodbye is a, a really hard thing to do. It's oftentimes a thing that can cause an awful lot of pain. And, uh, you know, pain um, can sometimes cause us to uh, respond or react in some really sinful ways really honestly as, as I studied through this this book for the, the final verses um, it's really hard for me just to say goodbye to our study of Philippians it's been uh, it's been a study it's been a, a deeply enriching study for me over the last few months especially in this year in a year where much of our existence as humans has been tested it's been tried by everything from major political upheaval to, to racial un, unrest and, and tension, injustice, um, to, to the pain and the fear and the division um, over a global pandemic. Like it's been good for me to have my heart realigned with the message of the gospel through an imprisoned apostle to, to a beloved church that he had planted 12 years earlier It was now 800 miles away from him. We talk about some separation. His instructions in this letter um, really inoculate the the poisonous diseases of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreeing and divisiveness. And the shot in the arm, the shot in the arm that he gives that... I know some would reject in his time and some will reject in our time. The shot in the arm is putting on the mind of Christ, thinking like Jesus, the one who humbled himself and humiliated himself, came down from his high place and gave up his rights for the sake of those who are weak, not just weak, but for the sake of those who are actually dead in their sin. Put on the mind of Christ and to work out our salvation in Christ. Trusting, believing, knowing that in Christ and Christ alone is our message of hope and no other thing. Another part of the shot in the arm is to stand firm in the joy of Christ. To trust and to know that for Christ, the joy that was set before Him, as Hebrews says, He pursued death on a cross so that the Father could then make His declaration of salvation, sainthood, perfection over those who once were His enemies. That's what it means to stand firm in the joy of Christ. And the central thread in that shot in the arm that Paul is giving is that statement that he wants us to live our lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, These these instructions are going to be forever etched on the sawn sheaths of my heart. So it is hard for me to say goodbye just to the study. And to hang all of these instructions that the Apostle Paul has given on this coat hook at the very end, this coat hook of God's grace which is made visible in the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. (coughs) That reminds me that the kingdoms of this world are not all they're cracked up to be. I need that reminder every day. Not all they're cracked up to be, okay? At some point, the kingdoms of this earth, they're going to be crumpled up in the corner of eternity just like every other man-made institution. There's only one kingdom that will remain, and that kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom will remain, and the saints of Christ Jesus will enjoy what, what scholars call the consummation of eternity. In perfect and unhindered relationship with the lover of our souls. That's hope we have. That's the kingdom that will never be crushed, that will crush all other kingdoms. You see the foot of the bloody cross, the doorway of the empty tomb, the promise of eternity in heaven, really the message of the gospel. This is what reminds us that when grace is your way of life, enemies become brothers forever. This is the power of Paul's goodbye. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this study in Philippians. I pray, Father, that now as we close in a time of worship, that you would come and minister to us, that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would... That you would rebuke where needed, comfort where needed, strengthen where needed, patch up where needed, but that you would most of all, Father, bring us to the foot of that bloody cross. Help us to stand in the power and the hope of the empty tomb and give us the hope of heaven. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well